This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to the holiday edition of Lends Me Your Ears, the movie podcast that takes a look at new films and theaters and then compares them to films from days gone by. My name is Stephen Cook. I'm an arts writer here in Halifax. My name is Karsten Knox. I write about film on a blog called Flaw on the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And there is no end of films about Christmas or films to fill you with Christmas cheer or or tell you the real meaning of the season. But uh, we're going to take a look at some films from off the beaten track or maybe coincidentally intersect with Christmas, but that still have enough holiday cheer in them to be a refreshing alternative to the holiday favorites of, of years gone by. And hopefully you'll find something you like and can share with the family and, and your friends so happy holidays to you steven so good to be to be sitting opposite you once again on this the 93rd edition of lens me your ears the film podcast uh we haven't we talked about maybe doing a holiday christmas-esque uh, seasonal uh, movie analysis, but we hadn't done it yet. And I thought maybe we had, once you do 93 podcasts, you start to forget <laughs> what we had done and what we haven't. And, and you know, it, it, around this time of year, there seems to be a perennial discussion about what makes a good Christmas movie. Uh, obviously, there are the classics, the ones everyone knows about that get shown every year on television. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life, uh, Miracle on 34th Street, and then more recently, things like Elf. And, uh, you know, th- these are the, these are the kinds of movies people go to. Even Bad Santa, to some degree, has been anointed oh, sure. cri- as a Christmas movie. It's sort of an alternative Christmas movie. That's what we're going to talk about today are films that uh, have some, as you said, have some Christmas content but don't aren't considered Christmas movies but could be elevated with the right cult and the, the right amount <laughs> of support. Could be elevated to regular, uh, you know, iconic Christmas movies just like Die Hard has. Now, now Die Hard is the one that everyone talks about. Is it really a Christmas movie? Well, I remember in the summer of 1988 when Die Hard came out and Bruce Willis was a TV actor from Moonlighting who was making the break and going to be in movies and he was in this action movie and it was just one of many action movies. The 80s were full of them, but it distinguished itself by being amazing. And then in more recent years, it's become, because of the Christmas Contact, it has become a Christmas movie. And in very, very, I think most people think of it now as a Christmas movie because, of course, uh, John McClane arrives on a plane on New Year's Eve to visit his, I think it's New Year's Eve or close to it, to visit his estranged wife's uh, party, office Christmas party in Los Angeles. And he is a New York cop and things go wrong when these these people take over the the building and want to steal a bunch of money. And anyway, I won't say any more about it if you haven't seen Die Hard. What are you doing <laughs> listening to this podcast if you haven't seen Die Hard is what I, I wonder. I'd say the vast majority of listeners have, have seen Die Hard or at least have seen enough references to it, maybe on Brooklyn Nine-Nine or something that they've, they've uh, absorbed it by osmosis, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, whether or not it's a Christmas movie, it takes place during Christmas. It's a fun movie. You can watch it with a lot of people and you can watch it endlessly over and over again. So I figure... It's close enough. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, I guess what we're going to do today is just talk about others that could possibly find also in that category of Christmas movies, but sort of from the stealth Christmas movies. Yes. Now, one of the questions I had for you, Stephen, speaking of action movies that are set uh, at this time of year, Shane Black 
is someone who's made a bunch of them. <laughs> kind of obsessed. He's kind of obsessed, and he just throws Christmas content in his movies all the time, and I, I've never really understood why, but I actually quite enjoy it. I mean, I think as a filmmaker, he has a certain style. It's occasionally a little bro-y, but for the most part, he is so clever in his dialogue and his characterizations that his films are super entertaining, and you can watch them again and again. He came to, I mean, he's also an actor, but he came to prominence for having written the 1980s action picture, uh, 1987, Lethal Weapon, and for those who don't remember, I mean, Lethal Weapon could very much be like Die Hard, but it isn't. And I think maybe because it's just a little darker and a little less family-friendly when you watch it again. But it does open with Jingle Bells Rock just before yes. a cocaine and suicide scene. And then Detective Martin Riggs, played by Mel Gibson, who, you know, your mileage may vary on whether or not you want to watch Mel Gibson at the holidays, uh, demolishes a TV set and then he to just shut up a Christmas commercial which is very satisfying and then he uh, in the extended edition anyway he single-handedly blows away a sniper at a grade school before long he's looking to plug his own nickel to a looney tunes christmas cartoon soundtrack this is pretty grim stuff at the holidays but the thematic subtext is happiness is in family which of course is very much part of that whole holiday movie thing i i think it's worth revisiting i mean especially if you like flagrant mullets and Eric Clapton and saxophone on the soundtrack. And and uh, Danny Glover getting too old for this. Yeah. Bleep. Bleep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I mean if you're gonna if you're gonna program Die Hard for your holiday, I think it might be worth also checking out Lethal Weapon. And and actually Shane Black in general. Do you want to talk about Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? Well, now that, now that we've gone down this this path for sure, because uh, I, I believe there's Christmas content in The Last Boy Scout, which uh, also has uh, Bruce Willis. And uh, Damon Wayans, I believe, yep. uh, playing a, a football player who's uh, got himself into trouble. And I think it said at the Christmas time. I, I remember not really liking that film very much when yeah, it came out. It's not not awesome. It's I remember it being kind of I find that maybe where the Shane Black kind of mean spirited misogyny goes into overdrive. And I have not revisited it in many years. I have a feeling that the film has not changed. It probably has not no, aged for the it better. It hasn't. I tried watching it a few years ago and it was not good. Uh, you know, but he seems to, I think he's, uh, I think he responded to some of the criticisms of that film and has kind of steered himself away from going down that sort of too dark a hole. But, but Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is, is kind of like uh, almost the perfect kind of buddy, I won't say buddy cop, buddy de detective movie uh, with this, this amazing chemistry between Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer. Um, now Val Kilmer plays a private eye who also happens to be uh, happens to be gay, and they make a big deal about that over the course of the film. Well, they can call him Gay Perry. They call him Gary Perry, and and so that's going to rub uh, some viewers the wrong way, I think. But it, it's, I mean, he's shown to. I mean, the character itself is not shown in a derogatory way. People act maybe in a derogatory way towards him. Um, but uh, so that's that's something you'll have to weigh on your own. But but the Kilmer is is terrific. It's it's one of his few great late career performances. I was you know I remember seeing this at the time it came out and hoping that there would be more like this kind of thing down the pipe. And there really uh, wasn't much of that sort of thing. So he does shine here. It is kind of the Val Kilmer we know and love uh, playing this very interesting and very capable character and Robert Downey Jr. playing a complete mess, which of course. We we haven't seen in a while because uh, you know he was he, in prison. Yeah, well, I mean his <laughs> his life was a complete mess, and and he's played characters like that. But but you know since becoming Tony Stark and Iron Man, 
you don't really think of him that way uh, so much anymore. So, so here he's he's basically a petty thief who just happens to luck into an acting audition to become cast in a in a movie um, for one reason or another, and uh, and he ha- gets involved in a murder plot in Los Angeles um, after flying out from from New York, and uh, and you know when he goes on a, a ride along with Perry to get a feel for his detective character that he's supposedly doing a screen test for, uh, everything goes to hell in a handbasket pretty spectacularly. Yeah, yeah, it really does. It's a very, very thickly plotted movie. Like, there is a lot going on. Um, one thing I really liked about it was that it had a great role for Michelle Monaghan. Who yeah, is, she's terrific here. It, yeah, it's one of, one of those actors who frequently plays sort of like the girlfriend or someone. She's in a fair amount of action movies and thrillers, but she she's often cast. I don't know that she's ever actually been above the title like whether or not she's had her own own film but she she's really great and she's really takes a bite out of this role in a way and of course a lot depends on her chemistry with uh, Robert Downey Jr. and she's got tons of that so so this is a is a really fun weird little movie and I you know what I guess we might have skipped over one which was the long kiss good night which was shot in Toronto that's the uh and Hamilton yeah let's not forget Hamilton yeah Gina Davis uh Samuel L. Jackson action movie that Shane Black I think wrote um and has yes Rennie Harlan directed it right yeah and it's set in the winter uh and I remember Working, I was working in the in film production in Toronto at the time that was made, and the the big deal about that movie, aside from the fact that it was one of the biggest movies made in the region at the time, was that they burned down one of the locations by accident. <laughs> they were Jeez. shooting at this like inn or this this pretty well known um, uh, like. Uh, cottage uh, somewhere out in the in the Muskokas or something this this resort and uh something caught fire while the crew was there and the whole place burned down it was it was pretty scandalous at the time anywho no the, the film the film is worth revisiting um you know talking about Shane Black movies and uh, you know it's all about his his zippy dialogue and i i and but yeah i don't know that i understand the christmas thing i also watched a little bit of Iron Man 3, which he also was responsible for, also set at Christmas, also starring Robert Downey Jr. Uh, And we talked a little bit about, you know, Iron Man, I think, when we did our superhero movie podcast. But, um, you know, one thing I realized watching that again is there's a scene in, in... in uh, in Iron Man three, where Robert Downey Jr. gets in a TV truck, and the guy sh- is a huge fan of Tony Stark, <laughs> and shows him a tattoo of his arm of Tony Stark, and Downey looks at it and says, "Oh, Hispanic Scott Bayo. Oh, is that supposed to be me?" <laughs> and that is a joke that is runs in uh, in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang because they're sitting at the bar and like, oh, the, that's right, and and uh, Native American Joe Pesci. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I that's another thing. I think if you watch a bunch of Shane Black movies back to back, you'll start to see these patterns in his writing that he just carries through from film to film. Yeah. Uh, well. I'd... Now I've got like three films dancing around in my head because uh, I like all three of those. Uh, but uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, just uh, it's it's a great ode to classic detective movies at a time when we don't really get a lot of detective movies these days. Um, you know, although Knives Out was this loving uh, kind of throwback to you know, sort of a postmodern Agatha Christie uh, tribute, which was which was uh, most welcome, of course. Um, but uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, even the, the chapter headings are all taken from Raymond Chandler books. Like the film is divided up into chapters, and each one is is a Raymond Chandler novel, Lady in the Lake, and uh, Simple Art of Murder, and a few other things. Um, uh, 
uh, along the way. So it's you know he's basically putting all his cards on the table that this is kind of his kind of you know sort of punk rock version of a Raymond Chandler novel as uh, as uh, you know Robert Downey Jr. just suffers increasing degrees of abuse over the course of this this uh, trek through through um through Los Angeles. Of course everything's decorated with Christmas lights and Michelle Monaghan plays a lot of the film in a Santa's little helper outfit. And at one point they go to this very avant-garde sort of Christmas party with people dressed, you know, people in cages dressed up as reindeer and posing and and everything like that. So it, you know, it, it, they definitely go all out with the film and it's not you know, you wouldn't think of it at all as being a Christmas movie, but I I, I thoroughly enjoyed revisiting this film and remembering all the all the trappings that kind of surround surround the movie and surround the story. Yeah, uh, and those things, those trappings are so. I mean, Shane Black is associated with sort of '80s action movie. That's where he got his start, and I, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang feels like the closest thing to almost an '80s action movie with the the buddy stuff, the plotting, and these really bizarro Los Angeles, California kind of stylistics um, nods. You know, and I, I think I think there's a lot to recommend that if you have if you do have a a, a soft spot for those kinds of movies. And I love the fact that uh, Robert Downey Jr. Michelle Monaghan's characters, they're actually like old childhood friends. They're from the same town in Indiana. And uh, I always get the feeling there's that wistfulness that, you know, you, Christmas in L.A. must be a very strange time because, of, you know, all the lights go up and the trees and front lawn decorations and stuff. But it's still Los Angeles. You know, it's it's still, you know, balmy out and people are still going to the beach and everything. But yet all of a sudden you've got to sort of try and put yourself in the mind of snow and and holly bushes and this yeah. kind of stuff. So I imagine, there's, you know, some people obviously, you know, if you're from California, you're from California, but so many people in Los Angeles aren't. And, uh, you know, they, they there must be that weird Christmas wistfulness, which may be part of the reason why we get so many Christmas movies too. Yeah. No, it's true. It is odd. I mean, that's probably true of anyone who lives in the Southern Hemisphere as well. Like, like Christmas does not necessarily mean snow to a lot of people. Uh, oh, I wanted to give a quick shout out, speaking of Los Angeles at Christmas, to Tangerine, which is the film directed by Sean Baker about five years ago. This is before The Florida Project, which was the film I think that a lot of people know him from because it was nominated for Academy Awards. Um, but this is a story, it's very R-rated. This is for adults, not for the family necessarily, <laughs> unless you've got a really interesting, cool family. Um, but uh, it's about two transgender prostitutes on Christmas Eve in L.A., uh, both of who have, are friends, but they have different agendas. One is is getting psyched up for a gig where uh, she is going to perform, and the other one is on a bit of a revenge trip trying to find her cheating boyfriend. And, uh, yeah, this is uh, all, all shot on iPhones. It's got a very uh, saturated, intense look. It's very funny, but it's really – it qualifies for a Christmas movie not only just because – of the the time it's set in, but because it's really about family and a community in a way, it gets to it. Not at first, but it does get there. So, um, yeah, I think uh, any. I, I wanted to give a shout out to Tangerine for anyone who hasn't seen it. It is available on streaming services. Um, I, I'm actually Stephen. I want to also mention to people who might be listening to this before the 24th of December. I'm going to be talking about alternative Christmas movies on CTV on the morning uh, of December uh, 24th. So uh, I think Tangerine is going to be one of the ones that's going to come up there. Oh sure, yeah. No, it's definitely a film more people need to see. And, uh, and of course, the Florida Project is always worth revisiting. I, have you ever spent a Christmas in Florida? By the oh, way, no, I haven't. Have you? Yes, uh, when I was a kid, we went to Disney World 
with my uh, aunt and uncle and cousins, and we all kind of went down on mass and drove down, which was a, an eye-opening experience to me, driving through the south for the first time. And, you know, the I-95 and south of the border, which is this tacky tourist stop, just and just when you cross over into South Carolina, the, the, there's these, this, you know, all this kind of Mexican designed style buildings and signs and Pedro, their mascot, who's, you know, obviously the cartoon guy in a sombrero and wow. you know you can buy fireworks there <laughs> and tacky souvenirs and they I actually stopped there as an adult years later I was driving a friend home to Miami uh this was in October not not around Christmas time but uh it was weird to you know, just to go back and revisit it like 20 years later and see how dilapidated and kind of it's still open it's still there you can still buy tons of fireworks but because I guess they're legal in South Carolina, but not in North Carolina. Oh, I think that's of course, how that works. of course, that makes sense. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it it and but they used to have billboards like starting in Delaware or someplace. There were actually billboards for south of the border all the way down I ninety five. And I think at some point government stepped in and said, "Look, knock it off." And and I think maybe now you don't see them until you get to Virginia, maybe. Mm. But uh, I I just remember like you know just a billboard every 10 miles or 20 miles it seemed you know like you're almost there and, <laughs> oh, and you're just man. like what was this magical wonderland going to be anyway that's one of my strongest kind of christmas memories pulling right. in and, and of course my parents were going to let me buy and i was like 10 or 11 or something like that they weren't going to let me buy a big box load of fireworks yeah, to take were they home called m60s of the big oh, fireworks yeah. but you know but i had friends that had brought back packages of firecrackers back to school right uh, you know this is an elementary school and so they're you know of course they were verboten on the school ground but there's always some kid who'd driven to florida with his parents and brought back a package of firecrackers which you cannot buy actually i still don't think you can buy firecrackers uh locally you can buy fireworks things that shoot up into the sky but things that actually blow up in your hand not so right. much not so much that's probably for the best that's probably for the best yes Welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears, and as you can tell from that last segment, this is going to be a very tangential show. We're just kind of riffing uh, this week. I've got a, if you can't see this, but we're in the CKD studio. I've got a big stack of DVDs of, of movies uh, that are either obscure Christmas classics or films that have references to it or scenes or whatever settings. Uh, and and we're just kind of bouncing back and forth on this one. It's you know all that's missing is the spiked eggnog. Really, we're, we're not allowed to have uh, liquids in the studio. But, yeah. and but we we also t- already talked about last Christmas, which is the Christmas movie in cinemas now. In our last episode that's true. about London, so so you know we've got that covered. So yeah. Well, you know, it's we didn't really talk so much about the Christmassy aspect of that film, and it's odd there aren't really any. I'm trying to think if there are any other Christmas themed movies playing in theaters right now. Boy, I mean Frozen maybe, I guess. I Frozen guess, I guess Frozen comes close. Yeah. It's wintry. It's got a snowman in it. Um, yeah. a very annoying snowman. And uh, I, I enjoyed Frozen too. Uh you know, I don't think it's quite up to the level of, of the first one. I don't think the songs are quite as memorable, but uh it's certainly artistically it's a gorgeous looking film and there's a couple of amazing sequences. So there you go. Uh, not like I need to tell anybody that Frozen Two is any good because I think <laughs> there, it's doing. I think it's doing okay on its own. I've heard that. Yeah, there's our Frozen Two review. Now onto the <laughs> onto the next thing. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it's it's going to be that kind of show. Just feeling a little giddy. I was out at a Christmas concert last night and then went to um, Tide House Brewing. So I was at a party believe. last night. So and then I got back and stayed up too late watching uh, Shane Black. Christmas movie. So yeah, it, it, it's it's uh, it's one of those one of those. We yeah, this is a Sunday morning recording, and uh, we are flying by the seat of our pants. Pretty pretty much. Well, I while well, during the pause there, we were trying to think of where to pick up uh, pick up from after jumping around uh, a bit in the first segment, and uh, I thought maybe we could just talk about some Christmas movie memories 
um, of our own uh, to see if there's any like familiar favorite films of yours that 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 come to mind or, or uh, and I, I certainly have a n- numerous uh, on my my side of the things but w- what would be a favorite like Boy. Christmas family movie memory that you can think of well you know I traveled a lot when I was a kid with my folks but my sort of real uh, interest and uh, fascination and uh, engagement with movies came when I was a teenager living in the UK uh, and I may have mentioned this again last week or last time last episode uh, that I have this this connection with London and uh, and one of the things that uh, that's a big deal in London or in the UK at the holidays is they show a lot of movies on television and they tend to show James Bond movies <laughs> or they did when I was a kid. Yes. And uh, we've of course talked about James Bond. We have a whole episode dedicated to 007, but uh, you reminded me that Honor Majesty's Secret Service is in fact a Christmas movie. Yes, it is. That's great. So I mean, that's one we can recommend. That's one of those ones. And I think, again, we talked about it, but it's over the years. I remember when I was a kid, that was considered one of the worst Bond movies because uh, George Lazenby was very much considered like, you know, he only did one Bond movie and he wasn't considered to be very good. But the whole movie has been reconsidered over the years and now is is amongst the favorite of real James Bond fans. Yeah, I don't know that Lazenby gets a a, a, fur, a fair shake there. It's um, or Lazenby. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever heard it correctly pronounced, but um, but you know, coming in after Sean Connery, I don't know that anybody could have filled those shoes. I like I try to imagine like what if Roger Moore had starred in this film? How would he have fared? Um, but obviously, Roger Moore got along a lot better with the producers than, than Lazenby did. Um, uh, you know, apparently he was very hard to deal with and. You know, like as soon as the film was done, grew this long beard and showed up at the premiere with this shaggy looking beard and, right. you know, not looking like James Bond at all. And, and uh, you know, yeah. you know, complained about the role and, and, and that kind of thing. So, of course, they dropped him like a hot potato and right. brought back John Connery. There's there's a great Lazenby or Lazenby um, documentary about how he was Bond. There, I, I, oh, I need to see that. Yeah, there's this. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head right now, but it's worth seeing. Um, yeah, so so yeah, there's Bond. What what about your Christmas memories? Well, I, I did want to talk about that Honor Majesty Secret Service oh, okay. thing because sure, it, go right it's, ahead. It's, <laughs> we we didn't really describe it at all, but it, yeah, because it, in the plot, of course, they bring all these women who I guess live on farms around the world, and Blofeld's plan is he said he's going to cure them of all these allergies, when in fact he wants to, uh, in fact, uh, inject them with plagues that will wipe out entire crops and things, and and you know, and then he's going to step in and be the savior of the world because he's got all the the cure to all these uh, food uh, uh, diseases that he's going to be spreading around the world. And, and <laughs> I don't. It's even, a funny. It's a weird little plot. Yeah, and I don't even remember how they resolve. Like obviously, there's a there's a big snowmobile chase and everything, and Bond gets married and all that stuff. But uh, I'm trying to spoiler th- alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. Well, <laughs> 1969. I, I think, people I should. Think we're okay. You I know, think people it's should. Diana Rigg. Yeah. It's it's you know who, it, who it make, it makes who, perfect sense. Yeah, who wouldn't uh, fall in love with her? She was amazing. But the, amazing. yeah, the, the the plot is these these girls are all brought there over the Christmas holidays uh, from all parts of the world to get over these allergies apparently, and then he's going to send them home with these these uh, diseases that are going to wipe out uh, all the food and and. Uh, I'm trying to think. It's like, well, did they act? Did, did Bond stop them before they actually get the, the, you know, the become the typhoid Marys, if you will? Um, I can't remember how how that pans out. I'll have to watch it again. I bet it isn't terribly well resolved. But it is, you know, they are in the Alps. 
um, you know, the, there's a big Christmas celebration happening in the village where um, Bond and Tracy go to kind of hide from Blofeld's goons, and then there's a big chase scene and stuff. And there's actually a Christmas song in the movie called That's How Christmas Trees Are Born, or That's Why Christmas Trees Are Born, I believe is the name of the song, written by Jackie DeShannon, um, whose version is great, but it's not the one in the movie. I think the one in the movie is sung by a bunch of kids or something. And it's on the act- it's actually on the film soundtrack LP, which I have at home, because it's just... It's it's one of my favorite uh, Bond movie soundtracks. It's it's got synthesizer on it for the first time, and it sounds they're trying to sound kind of space age and stuff. But but it just had this weird Christmas song in the middle of it all, and I don't think it's one that's been covered. Uh, it hasn't become a classic, but of course it it is uh, because it was a Christmas song that's not well known. It's featured prominently on one of my Christmas mixes that I do every year. So there you um, go. I, I, maybe I should if you're listening and you like Christmas music but are kind of sick of of grandma got run over by a reindeer and, and, uh, marshmallow world and, uh, Mariah Carey. Uh, I, I have a, a bunch of playlists on Spotify. It's swack.ns. That's S W A C plus sign N S altogether. And you can go there and, and hear some mixes of some sort of more obscure, uh, favorite and, and some, some gems that you might recognize. Uh, you know, it's not entirely, um, off the uh, off the beaten track, but uh, the older ones tend to have a few more of the favorites, like White Christmas by the Drifters and so on. But I, I try to find like some newer singles that you might not have heard and some obscure rarities. Of course, Spotify doesn't have everything, so uh, they're kind of they're often kind of pale in comparison to the actual mixes that I've got on my computer. But what are you going to do? Anyway, <laughs> that's a handy tip. But anyway, you were <laughs> saying we were there. That's enough with James Bond and my Christmas mixes. Where, where are we going next? Right, that is a good question. Um, I, I you <laughs> oh I no, I I wanted to know about your Christmas oh, yeah. memory. Well, uh, you know, oddly enough, uh, we moved, uh, I was born here in, in Halifax, grew up in Dartmouth. Uh, we moved to Calgary for a little bit and then moved back in the mid seventies. And we were actually, our house, we were getting a new house built in uh, Woodlawn in Dartmouth. And the house wasn't quite ready yet when we moved back much to my dad's, uh, consternation. <laughs> so all our stuff was in storage. We had to stay at the Dartmouth Inn on Lake Bannock, which is no longer there. Now it's where that superstore is. So we were kind of stuck staying in this hotel for an extra couple of weeks. And, you know, it was close to Christmas. I think we might have had Christmas in, in the uh, in the actual, you know, motel or hotel or whatever it was. And uh, because there was nothing much to do and not much open, we went to the movies. This is like Christmas 1975. And saw Island at the Top of the World, a Disney action-adventure film at the Paramount theater on Barrington street, which is now, uh, part of its mountain equipment co-op. And part of it is some sort of a technical training Institute, but that was, but the, it's about this, um, uh, rescue mission at the North pole. Oddly enough, it's not Christmassy necessarily, but they do go to the North pole in a blimp to save uh, an explorer who's got been trapped up there. And, um, it's very Jules Verne. I don't know if it's actually based on a Jules Verne story, but it's very much in that vein. And there's a lot of stuff about about the uh, about the blimp and the dangers of flying it in Arctic weather, and I think there's like a dog, like a poodle or something that's along for the ride or something like that. It stars that charismatic uh, actor David Hartman, who most people might remember as the host of Good Morning America on ABC. He he was an actor. I think he was on some medical show. Not the most charismatic of actors, but that's that's Disney live action for you. Get those B level stars, uh, you know, when their careers are at an ebb and, uh, make the most of it. So that's, that's kind of like a, a Christmas movie, uh, memory that I have that I'm still pretty fond of because you're just going to see a movie in a big theater and all that kind of stuff when you're a kid is, is a big deal when you didn't go to the movies all that much. So 
but but of course, as far as Christmas movies go, uh, you know, I saw the the Alistair Sim Christmas Carol at an early age, and that movie always gave me the the Willikers because it's so dark and creepy. It's I mean, it's as much of a horror story or a ghost story as it is a Christmas story, and it is my favorite version of the Dickens tale. Although I do like the musical version, Scrooge, with Albert Finney, and I have, I have a copy of that sitting here in front of me. Uh, worth seeing. It's it's a beautifully made film, gorgeous set design. The Dickensian uh, look of the film is, is pretty great. Uh, Albert Finney is a terrific Scrooge, and you also get uh, Alec Guinness plays Jacob Marley. So you can't go wrong with a film that has Alec Guinness in it. And uh, there's actually a scene where Scrooge has a vision of hell that I don't think is in any other version. It's not in the book or anything like that, but I think Marley, sort of Jacob Marley's ghost, takes him that extra step into uh, into uh, the inferno of Hades, and uh, and that makes for a really great sequence in the mm. film. So. It sounds cool. I haven't seen it, though it strikes me as being a pretty straight-ahead Christmas movie rather than yes, not so uh, much it's, a stealth it's, it's, one. It's not a stealth one at all. It's just a favorite <laughs> a favorite of mine. Sure. Direct, directed by Ronald Neem, who, who had an interesting visual eye and, and made a bunch of really fun, offbeat uh films in the UK but uh, yes that's, that's very much a Christmas movie but uh, but Island at the Top of the World not so much <laughs> it's got the North Pole but no Santa Claus um, so jeez uh, I don't know where we should go next but I know that one of the movies we talked about actually you reminded me and if you want to go back in time and see a, uh, a film is the the thin man yes. uh, that this the very first of the series there were I think six. Or five? I think five, or five of them. Five Thin Man movies. They I should know I've got the box set at home. But. They, they star, started in the mid-30s? Yeah, the very first one is a pre-code film. Right. Uh, in that period that uh, where the films were a bit faster and looser about sex and uh, crime and violence and all that kind of stuff. And then in, in the summer of 1934, um, the studios uh, laid down the law. They, they basically... This code that had been talked about for ages and ages uh, was actually finally enforced. And so it's like this curtain came down across Hollywood in the summer of 1934. And all of a sudden you couldn't, you know, the costumes had to be less revealing. You, you know, you couldn't have cops being shown in a bad light. Um, there's, there's a long list of, of things you couldn't do. Um, you couldn't show two people in bed together, uh, all this kind of stuff. So The Thin Man is sort of late. Uh, in the pre-code cycle, because the very next film in the series, uh, I think after The Thin Man, um, is post-code. So you can actually, between uh, part one and part two of the series, you can actually see the changes come into effect. Um, And unfortunately, I think some of that's the reason that the films diminish in quality as they go. Well, they get more domestic. You know, they're not the freewheeling, heavily drinking society types that they're in the very first one. They have a kid, and it becomes much more like a domestic comedy than a kind of... Um, freewheeling society crime caper kind of film. Right. But, and, and the kid is played by Dean Stockwell. Well, yes. <laughs> which is a crazy they, little bit of They trivia. send him off to military school. <laughs> uh, but yeah, for those who don't know, The Thin Man, I think loosely based on a, is a Dashiell Hammett it's novel. It's a Dashiell Hammett novel. It's actually fairly faithful, I think. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't know. I think that, that the characters are kind they might be kind of like based on the relationship between him and Lily and Hellman. You know, oh, they like their okay, booze. Right. They like their witty repartee. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they certainly attracted curious characters around them. And so they just, it's kind of like a fictionalized version of the real life couple of Hammett and, and Hellman. Um, but uh, it, it's such a, the first one is so great. And the rest of them are, are thoroughly enjoyable just because of the power of William Powell and Myrna Loy, who are such uh, engaging, charismatic stars. Myrna Loy, you know, she, you'd go to the ends of the earth for that woman, no doubt about it. And uh, this is one of her best roles. You know, she she'd kind of had this early career playing vamps and exotic women, and because she she just had this kind of 
you know, these high cheekbones and, and this very, um, you know, very fascinating face that, you know, she would often get be playing kind of, you know, weird ethnic villains and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, in films like The Curse of Fu Blood of Fu Manchu or whatever. So, you know, films that, that don't play well today at all. So thankfully, this kind of turned things around for her. She was playing a, a more three-dimensional character, a more sympathetic character, and she... And uh, and uh, William Powell had this amazing chemistry. They, in fact, made a bunch of films outside of the series. There's several uh, Powell-Loy films that are not Thin Man movies. They're, they're just uh, screwball romantic comedies, and they're all terrific. If, if there's a film with uh, William Powell and Myrna Loy in it, you should see it. Yeah, uh, T- yeah TCM tends to run them pretty regular. So, Yeah, yeah. And, and this movie, it's one of the things about when I first watched it. Yes, it said Christmas and I think New Year's as well. Um, but what really grabbed me was how... Uh, appealing it's it made married life look especially <laughs> yes. I mean there's so many movies about divorce and about schisms in relationships and that's where the drama is seated but this is a movie about a couple who are so happy together but still get on each other's nerves and have a, a murder to solve and by God they're going to do it and they're going to be drunk while they do it and there's so much drinking and so much partying <laughs> yes. that goes on as well it's almost like the murder plot is a sidebar to their having a good time and making fun of each other uh, and getting over hangovers and walking their their fox terrier Asta. It is these are great movies and the first one's the best of the bunch. Yeah, and there's a brand new Blu-ray of it. Apparently, there's been a new restoration of it. I just have the old DVD of it that came out in the box set, but they have uh, done a loving restoration of it, and apparently, it sparkles. So if you don't have a copy of this movie, definitely. Uh, but I mean, it shows up on TCM, you know, every couple of months. So. If you just want to see it once, then that's probably your best route. But if you if you really want to own a copy, and I'm thinking about double dipping, I hate to do that, but this is definitely one of my, you know, a film I return to just because it's so enjoyable. It's so fast paced, which is another um, bonus of, of like the pre code area. Those films just seem to be like just move at a, a locomotive clip, and uh, the, just the the physical comedy that's involved. The the you know Loy and Powell have these great facial reactions and. The, you know, there's stuff you don't pick up on the first time around. There's a great scene where he's out walking Asta, um, uh, Nick Charles, Nick and Nora Charles are the, the characters, the couple, and uh, he's out walking Asta, and, he, and you don't see the dog because it's sort of shot from the waist up, and he's stopping every now and again. You re- and you realize it's because the dog is taking a leak every time he stops. Uh, I think it was the third time where I realized what was going on. Cause, right. Because you, you couldn't show that in a movie in those days, <laughs> but they could imply it. It's, it's, it's a weird bit of bathroom humor that, completely got by me until I'd seen it a couple more times. And there's lots of stuff like that in the film. Plus the, there's, there's all these amazing character actors that play like all these crooks show up to wish Nick a, a happy Christmas. And like, he's the one who actually sent them to jail, but they don't hold it against him Cause he's such a great guy. He's such a great guy. They, he's such a swell. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just that whole, that whole clash between society life. Cause I, I think, uh, I guess Nora is a you know inherited a fortune, and he's just this you know street level gumshoe. So you get this clash between high society and and, and the kind of uh, you know Lower East Side you know rough types that that makes for for a lot of fun as well. So I yeah I can't say enough good things about the Thin Man. Yeah, no, I'm totally with you. Um, and speaking of witty repartee, and uh, I want to give a quick shout out though. I know we've spoken about it before on our mo- our podcast about 
royal movies or movies featuring royal families, but The Lion in Winter is one of my favorite Christmas oh, yeah, movies. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've got uh, Henry II played in all his barking glory by Peter O'Toole, who lets his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, and equally bellowy Catherine Hepburn out of the tower for Christmas. She, he keeps her in jail because he's afraid that she's going to uh, move against him and uh, take over his, his crown, basically, because she's so power-hungry. Uh, and he... And then uh, the three sons, who are all equally ambitious, John, played by Nigel Terry, Jeffrey, played by John Castle, and Richard the Lionheart, played in his first role by Anthony Hopkins <laughs> back in 1968. Um, this is a really witty, sharp film. It's very funny. It's a little bit like, for those Game of Thrones fans out there, it's a little bit like the Lannisters at Christmas. Like, it just <laughs> yeah. you can just imagine the plotting that goes on behind the scenes. Um, yeah, and so this is one I like to revisit as well because it, it'll make you feel better about your, your family. 90 Second Nova Scotia is an ongoing animated series showcasing the people, places, events, and things that put Nova Scotia on the world map. From household names to super obscure local fare, we shine a spotlight on all of the amazing stories to come out of our region. And we do it all in 90 seconds. So search for 90 Second Nova Scotia on YouTube today, or the link is in the show notes. So welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears, the third segment of our holiday seasonal show where we talk about stealth Christmas movies. And uh, uh, another one that, Stephen, you reminded me of, and I was quite pleased to revisit it, is In Bruges. This is the film about the two hitmen who arrive in Bruges, Bruges, Belgium, which is a beautiful medieval town, and they are laying low there after a botched hit where Ray, the uh, Colin Farrell character, has accidentally killed an innocent. And uh, this is really a something else. I mean, this movie... Uh, they Ray and Ken, the Brendan Gleeson character, they just wander around this beautiful town sightseeing as this kind of <laughs> odd couple, and they are real—they're funny and they're obnoxious. Um, this is one of those movies. It's written by Martin McDonough, written directed, who is an Irish uh, English playwright, and uh, it, his characters are very—they uh, really push the boundaries of good taste. Like this is a movie that that in, at times. You know, there's a little bit of fat shaming going on in it. There's there's definitely a questionable humor. Um, and you wonder whether or not is it the characters that are pushing this or is it the film? Like there's a little bit of a of a gray zone there where we are, as an audience, are we expected to laugh along or are we supposed to cringe? And I think there's a little bit of both. I think there is an equal measure of both of those things. But wow, are the characters vivid and the location cinematography. I feel like I've, having seen the movie... I feel like I've been to Bruges uh, at Christmas, which is when this is set. Well, I have been to Bruges, but it was in October in 1980. So <laughs> it's been a while. It's been a while, but as as I can see from the movie, it hasn't changed a whole lot. It's still, no, still pretty medieval. Um, yeah, this is uh, McDonough's first film, uh, first feature as a writer and director. He's since made uh, Seven Psychopaths and uh, the uh, much acclaimed and much contentious uh, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Um, so, you know, he, he's a director that likes to push buttons, maybe more gently. I don't think he's violently trying to get people opposed to his films, but he does like to kind of push some buttons and and, um, and poke you in the ribs a little bit. Maybe it's, a, it's just that Irish humor, I guess, that, that comes through. And, uh, you know, I, in fact, uh, my first time watching this was on a plane, and I, my, my focus was not terribly... Uh, terribly uh, 
focused <laughs> on this film and I was happy to revisit it, you know, on a, on a DVD, on the, on a, you know, the big screen TV at home. And, and I enjoyed it much more than trying to watch it on a plane. Cause it, I just, you know, there are bits of dialogue and little character moments that, that really didn't necessarily register when you're trying to watch it on the back seat of uh, somebody sitting in front of you. So uh, it's, there's a lot going on in this film and uh, you kind of have to, keep your attention focused on what's happening because things that happen early, earlier sort of connect later on and, and, and so on. He, he likes these kind of twisty plots where, where, you know, significant, insignificant moments early in the film can pay off big time later in the film. And it's kind of much like the Shane Black movies, I guess. Um, but it is, it, it is very funny. It's also very violent. Uh, yeah. When the so, violence so comes, it's brutal. It's, yeah. So keep that in mind. It's, it's not for the, the wee ones. Um, but obviously the, the shots of Ray Fiennes and Colin Farrell with, with pistols on the cover should probably give you a good indication. In fact, I think Colin Farrell's got a beer in one hand and a gun in the other, which is pretty much sums up his character pretty well. But, mm-hmm. but I, I, I liked, uh, I, I mean, the, the setting is gorgeous. I mean, Bruges is a gorgeous city. Um, and, uh, and the, the, they use that to its full effect in the movie. Everything's lit up. There's a Christmas market. There's a festival happening. Uh, and then all this mayhem is kind of happening, sort of intertwined into all of that. Um, you know, Brendan Gleeson's playing a very Brendan Gleeson kind of character. He's like a, you know, a tough, uh, Irish gang guy who, who's, who's kind of seen it all and, and doesn't take any nonsense. Colin Farrell, it's nice to see him play a, a kind of a different character. He, he's not, he's not super confident. He's obviously shaken by his, uh, failed hit that went horribly, horribly wrong, which is the reason why they're in Bruges in the first place. And, uh, he seems to be a little bit disturbed on some level. He, he's, he's got a temper. He's very insecure. Uh, and uh, it's it's great to see him play a character with with uh, a fair bit of weakness to him because I think we're used to seeing Colin Farrell playing these just kind of determined and you know confident and capable characters, and here he's very much the opposite of that. You know, so um, uh, you know when you first see him, he's kind of a kind of a wreck, and uh, and that was great. And then Ray Fiennes, uh, you think he's going to be playing a Ben Kingsley esque, you know, um, sexy beast, sexy yeah. beast kind of hard ass, and, and in fact he's. Uh, there's more to him than that as well. So, uh, you know, based on his first couple of phone conversations, you know, he's very contentious and he, he finds fault in everything. And you're, he's clearly someone you're supposed to be scared of yet when he, when he turns up, um, you know, he's got, as they, you learn more about him as, as he approaches or as he, he comes into the picture, uh, you know, he, he becomes a real surprise as well. So the movie's full of surprises and, and, and three great actors in the, in the lead as well. So, uh, Definitely check it out if you haven't seen it. It's 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 a great way to spend some time. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I was was great going back to it. Uh, it's still funny. It's still vivid, and uh, it's still uh, a little hard to take in places. I was like, whoa! I I can't believe they went <laughs> yes. there. Some of the humor, um, but. Uh, but yeah, um, it is one of the movies that definitely qualifies, could potentially be a stealth Christmas movie. Um, I got a few others here on my list um, going back to, you know, Eyes Wide Shut. I guess we talked about that yes. in the Stanley Kubrick episode because it's definitely a Christmas, more of a Christmas nightmare <laughs> as Tom Cruise wanders around a weird pagan New York City, which, of course, was shot in sound stages and streets of London. Um, and... Uh, Another one that I'll throw out there, I don't know if you've seen it, Stephen, is Smilla's Sense of Snow from a 1997. It's the adaptation of the Peter Hoog novel. Is that set Julia in, Ormond? That's oh. right. Yeah. yeah, I saw that years ago. Probably. Yeah, set in chilly Copenhagen around Christmas uh, before it sets off to Greenland in the final act. 
Uh, and it is a it's one of those films where, you know, a lot of different actors from uh, Euro pudding films where a lot of different actors from all over Europe come <laughs> to play Danes and do Danish accents opposite actors who are actually Danes speaking English. So, you know, you've got your Jim Broadbents, your Tom Wilkinsons, your Richard Harris's, your Gabriel Burns, P- Peter Capaldi, Robert Loggia, and even Vanessa Redgrave. I mean, this is an A-plus cast, um, but it's... Uh, it's uh, it, it's actually it's it's kind of an action movie, and uh, Julia Roman plays this really interesting character. She's part Greenlandic, and she's she has this, uh, and she's basically trying to figure out the uh, the the mystery around the death of a of a young boy who fell off a roof, uh, and uh, and why right. he did. And uh, yeah, I haven't seen it since it came out, so it's all coming. Yeah, back to it's me a now. it's a little dark, but it's. Uh, it's really worth uh, checking out, I think. It's at the end, by the third act, it starts becoming more of like, Ormond starts to feel a little bit like the roaming daughter of Indiana Jones and James Bond as she abseils down the side of a Russian freighter into, onto the ice. But uh, it's, it's, a, it's pretty, pretty worth checking out as a as sort of a stealth Christmas movie. Um, and of course, you know, we can't not mention Brazil. From yes. 1985. Uh, this is Terry Gilliam's bleak Christmas set future vision for anyone who struggles with Orwellian bureaucracy bordering on totalitarianism. And who doesn't in, in 2019? <laughs> um, this, uh, there's some bitter laughs to be had here in his, I think, his kind of his masterpiece. Oh, it's it's definitely his best film. And uh, this, uh, the, the, it's very cynical about Christmas. Uh, you know, but people are you know, buying and giving these ridiculous, pointless gifts all through the film. And there's, you know, meanwhile, there are like terrorist attacks happening in London and all this stuff in this dystopian version of of England. And, um, you know, maybe it's because he has this vision of, you know, Christmas in England being the country at its best. And yet here it is being shown at its worst as it delves even further into this bureaucratic nightmare. And, and uh, Jonathan Price is, is just trying to sort out what happened to, to a guy who got, uh, taken away and locked up because of a, a fly speck on a document um, sent police after the wrong person kind of thing. So it's just this one one weird little accident sets off this crazy chain of of of, uh, of events. And it, Tuttle versus Buttle. Tuttle versus Buttle, exactly. <laughs> you know, with, with De Niro's a weird um, kind of rebel plumber who fixes people's, uh, you know, heating ducts and units without... Uh, the, Going through the proper procedure, and, uh, and that is a and that is a uh, freedom fighter worthy uh, thing to do. Oh, for sure. I'd, yeah. I'd, if you haven't seen Brazil, you have got to see it. It's it's definitely one of my all time favorite films. And you know the the Christmas aspect of it is kind of tangential, but it is kind of lurking in the background. And I I feel like Gilliam includes there's a Christmassy kind of atmosphere to Twelve Monkeys mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. I think that you know when some I mean I mean Bruce Willis's character is jumping around in time, but the, there's uh there's an element of Christmas to that, you know, especially in the flashback he keeps having and so on. And uh, and then, of course, we can't forget the Christmas in Heaven sequence in Monty Python and the Meaning of Life. Um, you know, it, it's uh, the, the film that I mean, that film jumps around as much as this podcast is doing. Um, but there is one scene when all the characters gather uh, in heaven and, and there's uh, Graham Chapman as a kind of a Tom Jones-esque lounge singer singing this really treacly Christmas in Heaven number, which I have on a seven-inch forty-five at home, but uh, it's uh, it's it, an angel, these weird topless angels and Santa helper outfit. Anyway, it's it's completely ridiculous and over the top, but you, you owe it to yourself to see it if you haven't. Um, 
you know, one other movie uh, that is definitely a Christmas movie that I'd like to mention. Um, actually, this is a moment for a, a shameless plug. Oh, sure. uh, my other podcast that I do in in connection with my blog, Flaw in the Iris. Yeah, we don't is, talk about that enough. No, well, I this don't. Other life. I, I, I have the blog and I do this other podcast, but I don't do it nearly as regularly as this one, uh, just because it's, it's a little bit fallow. I, I sort of pick it up from time to time. But as the end of the year approaches, I am doing a best of the decade kind of conversation with a variety of different people who love films or work in films. Um, and I'm speaking to uh, Lisa Buchanan this week. She has a passion for Carol, the Todd Haynes film. Uh, it's her favorite of the past 10 years. And she is actually hosting a screening of it in Halifax on Wednesday, the 18th of December at the uh, Museum of Natural History, at the screening room there. So anyone who happens to be listening to this before then, please consider that. I think that'll be a good time. Uh, and uh, also coming up on the Flaw in the Iris podcast is a conversation I had with Empire uh, editor-at-large and great film writer uh, Helen O'Hara. So that is coming up. I can't believe that actually happened. But I was in London last week, and I spoke to Helen O'Hara. She very kindly uh, allowed me some time to chat with her about her favorite films the past 10 years. So that'll be coming up on the Flaw in the Iris podcast in the next couple of weeks. So I would urge listeners to check that out. I will have that up soon. But, uh, yeah, let's talk a little bit about Carol. Carol was a film that I remember when I first saw it back in 2015 – I found it really engaging, but also a little bit chilly. Like, I felt like the characters were a little, you know, it's a romance, but it's a little a, a chilly one. Watching it again, um, I found that it was much more engaging, much more passionate than I had initially ex- expected. And Lisa, who will talk about the film a little more on my other podcast, um, you know, pointed out that it really, it really, uh, people in the queer community really get it. Like, it's, they see the kind of restraint and the kind of carefulness that the characters have with one another. And, um, and, and seeing it a second time, I, I really felt like she, I got that. I, I'm like, oh, yeah, this, this is a much more complex and interesting film than maybe I originally gave credit yeah, for. Yeah, it's a great co- companion piece to his uh, previous Far From Heaven. Um, I feel like it's, it's in a similar vein with a very strong uh, female performance in the lead in this case. Um, it is well. It was. It was it's uh, Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett. It was Julianne Moore in Far From Heaven. Right, and Kate yeah. Blanchett in this film, and uh, just uh, yeah, I I feel like I, I got it the first time around. Like I felt there's a lot of simmering passion beneath the surface, and it's set at a time when you were, you know, the best thing to do is just to keep it all locked up inside as best as you could. And so, you know, she's definitely on a low boil all throughout the film, and 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 you know, feeling uh, the repercussions of 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 her own desire. I, I haven't seen it since it came out, but I just have a really fond memory of this film and, and the gorgeous world that it's set in. And, and um, you know, I guess it could be easy to get caught up in the trappings and the look and the design of the film, but but there's a lot going on in Blanchett's performance that uh, you can really zero in on and, and get a lot out of. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Todd Haynes is one of those filmmakers who has a really interesting body of work. We've talked about Safe, another film he yes. made with Julianne Moore. Um, and he has a film in cinemas now. It's not a Christmas movie. Although it is, I think there there are some Christmas settings in it. I yes, think. yeah, because it takes place over, like, almost 20 years. Yeah. Um, and it is called Dark Waters. I think it's worth seeing. I, I wasn't... I didn't see a lot of the sort of Hainesian style, and I sort of missed some of his more idiosyncratic cinematic qualities. But as a procedural, it's very successful, I think. And it's very dark. It's about how this crusading lawyer basically tried to uh, bring 
to to terms um, DuPont and chemical companies who were dumping toxic waste in the environment and uh, starring Mark Ruffalo. So, yeah, it's out at Bears Lake now. So if people are want to check that out, it's yeah, yeah the Christmassy thing. It's it's well, I don't it's 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 uh, yeah. Anyway, or wintry. I it's guess, wintry. Maybe. It's definitely wintry. But uh, it's also but, his yeah. first like modern day set film in quite some time like maybe since mm-hmm. safe even i think yeah. i'm trying to think back but um so maybe you know he can indulge in a lot of the period aspects of it but um you know the, i think there's a probably a tone to the acting that is very hainsy and um and uh you know i, th- I have a feeling it's going to be one of the the better received films of the year yeah when all said yeah and done. that might be that might be the case i had some some uh criticisms of it but I'm, i was really glad to have seen it uh, right, so now we're coming towards the end of our uh, we're Christmas. Getting we're getting there. The end of our Christmas holiday movie or stealth Christmas movies. Is there anything else that you on your <laughs> list, even that you wanted to discuss? Um, uh, another sort of tangential Christmas film is uh, John Waters. Uh, not his second feature, but the you know after Plink Flamingos brought him to to uh, to attention, um, he had a a bit more money, but not much because it's still pretty low budget. Female Trouble. Um, with Divine uh, as Don Davenport, it's 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 kind of a a parody of the juvenile delinquency films of the 1950s. Uh, but it starts out at Christmas time, and the, there's some fun scenes in like the high school classroom where, of course, nobody looks like a teenager. You know, it's like 40 year olds playing teenagers, I think, in this film. And um, and uh, Divine uh, just wants to get that pair of cha cha heels for Christmas, and. Uh, and then, you know, when, when when she wakes up on Christmas morning and opens up a box and it's a pair of flats because good girls don't wear cha-cha heels, um, the whole Christmas freakout that she goes through is is you know it's it's not uh, not safe for work. <laughs> it's, it's you know we'd, we'd love to play a clip of it, but it, you know, it would it would definitely push us into the uh, uh, explicit realm. Uh, but uh, it's it's hilarious. It's so funny when she has her kind of breakdown and and then she just goes into this kind of whole juvenile delinquent uh, hellscape and becomes like a crime crazy crime boss. And also there's a whole bunch of Christmas horror movies, especially in the 1970s. But but even after that, uh, um, there was just a whole this, the idea that you know Christmas is the merry time of year. But a lot of filmmakers decided to delve into the darker side of uh, of the holiday. I mean, more and more recently, we've had things like Krampus. You know about the the kind of European tradition of the monster that accompanies Santa Claus, who punishes the naughty children, that kind of thing. Um, but my favorite of the bunch is probably Dick, uh, Bob Clark's Canadian uh, Toronto shot uh, Black Christmas, about a killer stalking a sorority home at a university um, over the Christmas holidays. And uh, I saw TV ads for this as a kid. They showed TV ads for this that were terrifying. You know, there's a scene of, it's early in the film, so it's not really a spoiler, but early, and it's on the front cover of the DVD, where a character gets strangled with, like, some plastic wrap. And that was actually in the ad, and I saw this as, like, a like a, like a seven-year-old kid, and that just gave me nightmares for years to come. But it's actually pretty great as a film. It's got lots of familiar Canadian faces. John Saxon is the cop who's investigating everything, but you've also got uh, Olivia Hussey from Romeo and Juliet and um, Margot Kidder, and uh, Andrea Andrea Martin from SCTV, they play some of the sorority uh, sisters um, who are being stalked, and uh, it's very effective. It, it's not overly um, gory. I think there isn't like an axe attack at one point, but it's all very, um, you know, shadowy and everything, and lots of fast cuts. Uh, he's Bob Clark, uh, of course, would make a Christmas story, you know, one of the most Christmassy movies of all time. Um, but but this is in 1974. This is early in his career, and. Uh, uh, he's very much in kind of Hitchcock mode, and, and this was 
this film is deemed to be a big influence on things like Halloween, which of course took pretty much the same idea and just set it at a different holiday. So that's Black Christmas. Did you want to quickly give oh, a yes. nod to the Finnish? Oh yes, rare, um, rare exports. Rare yes. exports. That's I, one I'd not heard of. I, I think this film is fairly well known, but uh, but it might not be so easy to track down. But it uh, it's kind of achieved a. a Fair bit of cult status. It's from 2010. Um, a director named uh, Jelmari uh, Hellander uh, is a is a Finland director. I think he works in TV at the moment, but um, he he made a big splash with this film about uh, 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 there's basically an archaeology uh, expedition to find the grave of Santa Claus in this gigantic mound that sits right on the Russian-Finnish border, and um, they're trying to they they found the, what they believe to be the tomb of Santa Claus. And meanwhile, the local community of, 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 of reindeer herders and, and, and uh, farmers and, and huntsmen um, are very perturbed about all this mining activity taking place in the giant hill on the edge of town. And um, eventually they do uncover something, and what they uncover is, uh, is more naughty than nice, as it turns out. And uh, there's, there's a, an adorable uh, young kid who's uh, very concerned about what's happening on this mountain. He's been spying on the mining crew, so he kind of knows what they're up to. And uh, this kid, Ani, uh, Ani Tomila, um, decides to do a little research into what uh, the old legends of Santa Claus, not not the mall store Santa that uh, you sit on his knee and tell him what you want for Christmas, but the, the old kind of pagan um, uh, St. Nicholas or, or whatever you want to call him. Uh, he's trying to find out what, uh, what this is all about, and he doesn't like what he discovers. And uh, it turns into a, a pretty pretty dark and... and fairly insane vision uh, with uh, with many Santa's helpers running around and and so on. I don't really want to say much more about it, but it but it's very funny, it's very very fast-paced, um very Finnish. And very Finnish. Yes, it's uh it's mostly in Finnish uh with some English dialogue from the mining company, but uh, that's doing the excavating. But uh you know, it it's full of surprises and uh full of these really winning characters, these kind of bewildered uh, Laplanders who who are trying to deal with a very very uh, ridiculous situation that they found themselves plummeted in. So if you get a chance to see Rare Exports, I, uh, I definitely uh, recommend giving that a look. Thank you, everyone. And a wonderful season's greetings and holidays to everyone listening here at the end of 2019. You've been listening to the film podcast. <laughs> That's me, your ears. And uh, on our goofy Sunday morning recording, uh, Stephen, all the best to you for the holidays. Same to you, Karsten. You've been listening to Lens Me Your Ears. If you want to reach out to us, we are on Facebook. We are also on Twitter as at Lens Me Your Ears. I have my own uh, Twitter account. It's named after my blog, Flaw in the Iris. And Stephen, you're on Twitter as well. Yes, at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And lots of Christmas music on my, uh, my Spotify account, S-W-A-C plus N-S. We also have a Patreon if you'd like to share some of your hard-earned cash with us and help us do what we do. We would very much appreciate that. Thank you so much to CKDU 88.1 FM in Halifax for the studio facilities and for airing this show every second Tuesday at 5.30. Thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network for all that you do as well. Thank you so much for listening and uh, Merry Happies, Happy Marys, all the best for the season. See you next year. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.